All right, you crazy, kind, warm, affectionate, welcoming people. How are you doing today? Oh, really? Come on. How are you doing today? Good. Glad to hear it. Glad to hear it. Well, we want to welcome you. Uh, if you're a guest here today, a special welcome to you. Thanks for joining us, making Trinity Church a part of your weekend uh, plan. You know, we, last week, we were kind of, as a pastoral staff, trying to figure out, we really want to take a, t- a moment to recognize and thank veterans. And, and usually we're ahead of the game. We'll do that leading into a weekend. But with Veterans Day just this last Friday, so close, and we're grateful that you're here even on a holiday weekend. But we want to take a minute to acknowledge and thank our veterans. So if you're currently serving in our armed forces, or if you are a veteran, would you stand up? We just want to thank you so very, very much for your service. Let me take a minute and pray for you, those who stood. Father God, we want to say thank you. Thank you so much for a group of men and women who have protected our country. And those that are here today, God, would they just know your honor and pleasure. God, the fact that they have served well. And we know, God, lots of things in America that need, um, need help. But God, we're grateful for a place that we can gather today. We can lift up your name, focus upon who you are. We can be prepared to be people of world change, bring the gospel to our worlds. And we get to do that because we live in a place called America. So we are grateful for these who have served. God, at battle lines, when we would run, they've run into. And we're grateful for their bravery, grateful for families, God, that were sacrificial when they were serving you. And so thank you for their dedication and service as well. We love you, and we're grateful today, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you very much, vets that are there here and those currently serving. We are very grateful for you on this Veterans Day weekend. If you have a Bible, you can open it to Ephesians 6. That's where we're going to be today. If you have notes from your worship folder, you can get those out. And here I am yet again with this football, because that's what this is. Our series we've been talking about since we started together back in August is talking about getting back to the basics. This idea of getting on the same page with God's objectives, both with God vertically, with each other horizontally, and wanting to please him. Wanting to please him because why? This is his church. Trinity Church is Jesus' church. So we want to follow his leadership in our lives. So as we move forward today, we're going to keep pushing the ball down the field. And what we've seen is we've seen throughout this series a God who says that because you're mine, in a great way, Not because he just simply claims ownership, but he's provided a way, a price paid. Former slaves could be actually brought home into his family, called his children. And now that we're in his family, what he's done now in the second half of Ephesians is showed us this is what it means to live according to whose you are. A couple weeks ago, we got to Ephesians 5 and we found really two powerful things. One, that we're supposed to live very purposeful, strategic lives. Quote, making the most of every opportunity. And then the second phrase, be being filled with the Spirit of God. When we saw that idea in Ephesians 5 of be being filled, that ongoing action, we found that there were really four ways that played out. And the final one of those is up on the screen today. It's in Ephesians 5 verse 21. It says, submitting 
or submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. That word submit is a participle, so it could be understood as this ongoing action of submitting. But the question lies in, well, to whom and how? How are we to submit to one another in this new family culture within the family of God? And that's the great thing. Chapter five and chapter, the beginning of chapter six are devoted to those ideas. If you were here with us last weekend and these three different types of relationships, we looked at the first of those, that of the marriage relationship. Take a look at the, the graphic up on the screen. This kind of um, typifies what we talked about last week. We wanna, we'll go ahead and fill in those blanks that we see wives on the one side, husbands on the other. We see this triangle. Let me explain what's going on visually. You'll see these broken dots, these, these lines of relationship, and they talk about how God has both husbands and wives in his family. They're his kids. And in that relationship, the red arrows represent that we have a right response vertically towards our father. All of these things we see, remember it's all couched in not submitting to one another because someone's more powerful than you are. Submitting one to another because God says, this is how it works in my family. So our, our responses are, first of all, God-based. He tells us to. Then secondly, we have appropriate responses, wives to husbands and husbands to wives. And it represents that relationship. And if you're here with us last week, we walked out, what is that role of husband and wife? And then what are these, relation, or these responses of wives willingly following a husband's lead? And of husbands sacrificially loving their wives? And now today we look at these two other types of relationships that God wants to give direction, wants to give insight into. One is that in our parenting, in our home life, and the second one is on the job. So we're going to dive in today. Number one, in your notes, your parent-child relationship is to be defined by training and obedience. Your parent-child relationship is to be defined by training and obedience. Here's what we mean. Ephesians 6.1, take a look in your Bibles. It says, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Verse 4, fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Let's do this to start off. Let's fill in that same graphic now, now designed related to children and parents. And you'll see in the same way, the same reality is there. God has some kids. Some of them are called children. and Some of them are called parents. And those dotted lines reflect relationship. Well, in response to that relationship, we honor God when we live these ways. And then these responses are also to be in the right way towards one another. Children to their parents, parents to their kids. So if you're in the room today, let's clarify a couple things. First off, when I'm talking about children or kids today, let me define that term. Because just because you live at home and you're 26, I'm not talking to you. Okay? So I'm not just going to say if you're living in your parents' home, because that might not be true. You're, you're in a different category, different relationship. But I'm going to say if you're a minor living at home, this is talking about you. Now, we know first century, that the, the, the parent-child relationship, like when did a, a, a child become an adult was different than today. And even in the Hebrew culture, we remember that, that kids became adults at 13. If you've ever raised a 13-year-old, <laughs> you are super confused by that. Like, wow, Lord, I can't even imagine this being considered a, 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 an adult at this point. 
By the way, none of you guys are down here were laughing. So I just <laughs> take, that, take that to heart. Okay. But let's, let's talk to you, though, a little bit. Here's the deal. When we're talking today of these, of these responses and these roles, I don't want for a minute to assume that this is just naturally going well for parents or for kids. Today, when we talk later on about the work relationship, I don't want to assume this just naturally is going fine between you and your direct report or vice versa. See, God wants to speak into every aspect of our lives because he he intends that every aspect of our lives screams the fact that we are be being filled and we represent Christ well in every relationship. So let's start today. We're talking to four audiences today. The first one are our kids in that reference. Now, what we know from the very beginning, Paul, he doesn't just say children obey your parents. He could have, and that would have been enough. But he actually goes back and he quotes from Exodus chapter 21. Exodus 20, I'm sorry. Within the Ten Commandments, this is the fifth commandment, referring to the way that children respond to their parents. So what we know is, is that ever since God began to define his culture for his people, kids have been called to obey their parents. That's not new information But as we see it today open up a little bit, I think it's going to be challenging and hopefully encouraging at the same time. Interestingly enough, he actually says within that, that this commandment of these 10 commandments, this is the first one given that had a promise. God, remember, because God is who he is in every facet of our lives, he can simply say, do it because I said so. And that would be fair. That would be right. But God often goes on to say, and let me show you why, this one, that it may go well with you, that you may enjoy a long life. So when we see these ideas, remember what Paul originally says, children obey your parents in the Lord, this is right. But then he goes on to quote Exodus 20, which says, honor, honor your parents. Now, let me talk, and I know some of our high school students are here, some over there, and then some are scattered, junior high and high school over the room. So I won't just think that you're all sitting in one area. However, this, this is really challenging because all of us in our lives, we have people that we can um, give some sort of external obedience towards. There's a list and I can check it. Chores, let's say, or homework or whatever it may be. I can do what you're telling me to do, but that's obedience that's not necessarily honor because honor says something different. Honor is defined by things like this. Um, The reality, let me find my really cool definition. You're like, Todd, tell me what honor is. Prizing them highly, showing affection for them, showing respect. That's what it means to honor your parents. So obedience is do what I say. And we could do that with a clarity of mind that says, hey, I do what my parents tell me to do. But if you were to say that the Bible says, but honor your parents in the way that you in a sense, from your heart and the way that you talk about them, even when they're not in the room, well, that's a whole different animal, isn't it? Honor your parents is the call, not just mere obedience to an outward list of rules. So now it comes to this idea, now how are we supposed to do that? Some of you are here today, and I have a sense that it's a little bit potentially on the older of our scale. So meaning if you're here today and you're seven, it doesn't mean that everything's rosy with mom and dad, but if you're 17, challenges are probably a little higher. And if you're here today and you're going, but Todd, my parent or parents don't deserve my honor. Now, if you're here today and you're a parent 
you just cringed a little bit. Because you're going, but do you have any idea what I've been doing for you for the last 17 years? Do you have any idea at all of what this whole thing, and so it's really almost, you know, grating for a parent to hear those words, but Todd, my parent, I don't think my parent deserves my honor or obedience, but I want to tell you that whether mom or dad, you think that is appropriate or not, if it's where your student, your child is today, that's where we need to talk. And here's what I want to put out. In the very same way last week that we said that wives are not to wait until their husbands start loving them sacrificially before they follow their leadership. With a similar picture, children are not supposed to wait until their parents become honorable to honor them. And you go, Todd, that is hard. Uh Uh-huh. I get it. You got to remember, I was a youth pastor for 10 years. I was a family pastor for eight more. I've heard a lot of things. I've heard a lot of things of dysfunction in a home where I am a little bit wise enough to know that in this room, though we look really nice today on the outside, there may be a whole lot of garbage going on at home. And where... A 16-year-old would tell me, but Todd, my parents are not honorable. I've learned to give that a little bit more leeway than I used to. So let me say this. If you're here today and you're going, Todd, I really struggle with this. I struggle giving my parents the honor that you say the Bible is calling me to. Let's pull back then a second. Let's ask this question. What is the family in the first place? You see, the reality is, is you're going to leave that's good. It's, it's good for all parties, okay? You're going to leave. So here's what we got to say. If this is a temporary relationship, temporary in the sense of that kind of authority, and, and let me throw this out to you. I told, I've told all of my kids this. Kendi are in, and uh, Kendi's in the room. Malia's out of town. Jackson's at college. And, but Kendi and Ellie are here today. I've looked at each one of my kids somewhere along the line, and I have said... I know this is challenging for you to get under my leadership, but it will not always be this way. I'll never cease to be your dad. However, the the kind of authority that I have in your life at six, the kind of authority I have in your life at 12, the kind of authority I have in your life at 17, that will change. And so for now, God has called you to followership. God has called me to leadership. Let's both do our jobs. That's what this is. The family is a laboratory for learning authority. Because guess what? If your parents are hard to follow now, their face is just going to look different in the future. It's called a boss. Or young ladies, it's called a husband. Now, I'm not trying to say you follow a husband like you follow a parent, but I am talking about God-ordained authority. God says this is how this ought to function. So today's not just to pull up your bootstraps and go. Here's what today is. Remember what we said underlies this whole thing. When we will live out the right responses towards one another, we evidence, we demonstrate that we are be being filled. 
You show your parents, you show your friends, you show your world that there's something unique in your life, some sort of power and presence in your life that other people scratch their head and can't figure out what that's all about because that is the reality of God present within you. A disclaimer, remember last week I said, wives, if you're here and your husband is calling you to some sort of leadership that violates a principle that God has set other places, that is not followership. That is not submission. I know this sounds almost extreme and bizarre that I would say this, but I want to say this to young adults in the room today too. If you're a minor under your parents' leadership and they are asking you, directing you to do something that violates God's principles somewhere else, then in the same way I said that to wives, you need to seek help. When you process, when you process this reality of living under the leadership of your parents, I want you to know the reality is it is going to be worth it. I've met so many uh, young adults, let's say in their 20s, 30s, and even beyond, that have major authority issues. Some of them were in my youth group. And I want to tell you, hear me on this. If you're having a hard time getting under the authority of your parent, it's not going to just be okay someday. This is where it happens. This is where it gets real. This is where you start putting these things into play. The Bible says, children, honor and obey mom and dad. Let's talk about moms and dads. You filled out a covenant, many of you did anyways. You weren't compelled to. You didn't have to, but you did. And if you remember, this actually addressed parenting, just like last week it addressed marriage. For those of you who signed it, said, we covenant before the Lord to, for those of us who have children to demonstrate to them the love of, of their good, good father. We just sang about that. By the way that they carefully and intentionally raised them, the way that we would do that, to love him in return. We covenanted to be those kinds of parents. And here's the thing, if you were reading, you were paying attention that at the beginning it says, children obey your parents, but here in Ephesians 6, 4, fathers. Those are two different Greek words and they're translated in English differently because they're two different Greek words. So here's what we're saying. If Paul wanted to say in Ephesians 6, 4, parents don't exasperate your kids, he would have. But he said, dads, hmm, okay, what do we do with that? Well, I think first off, we do this. First, if, remember we said last week that what Paul's addressing, first century Ephesus is this. A man who was married, a man who had children, and a man who was like an employer, a direct report for people, he served as like a mini king in his home, in his world. There was very little that outside authorities would do to get in the way of his leadership. So Paul's addressing, in some ways, one man with three different hats. Now, he's also addressing his wife. He's addressing his kids. He's addressing, we'll find out in a minute, those who directly report to him. But the point is, is that he's addressing that kind of leadership. So this doesn't mean that moms don't need to raise their children in a manner pleasing to the Lord. Absolutely it does. And we see that all over scripture. We're just saying in this particular passage, if you're here today and you're a dad, you should take this to heart. Even more than if you're here and you're a mom. If you're here today as a single mom, I know you wear both hats. 
And it's a super challenging role. Any single parent has it tough. But within that regard, this kind of then applies to you in a unique way as well. I want you to see, look at this, the power of this reality of parenting poorly or parenting well. The correlating passage to Ephesians 5 is Colossians 3. Take a look on the screen. We've already read this. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not embitter your children, or they will become discouraged. Two words, exasperate and embitter. Those are both commandments not to do these things as a dad in your home. Not to exasperate, not to embitter. What do those words mean? Originally in the Greek, they kind of mean this, to provoke, to cause, to rouse, to anger. I like this, to push somebody's buttons. Literally, one of my commentaries said that, to push someone's buttons in such a way that rouses anger. Now you look at that and you go, okay, you know, I, I, don't, I don't intentionally do that in my kids' lives. I don't know if you intentionally do or not. But the passage isn't talking about intent. The passage is saying, don't. And this is what I found. How how does this happen? How does a father exasperate or embitter his kids? And I think it's simply this, by being insensitive to the things that discourage them. It's being insensitive to the things that discourage them. I've told you, as a youth pastor for 10 years, a family pastor for eight, I've seen a lot. And as I've interacted with families, I have often seen kids deal with the brunt of what was going on at home. It's just a part of that reality. It's a ripple effect. But when I have sat across the desk, when I have sat across the table from a student who is exasperated or embittered, I've seen them too. Here's the interesting thing. When you see it in their eyes, It's often when you hear their stories, it's because of parents, in this case, a dad who continues to rail on them for failing to meet expectations. Continuing to rail on our kids for failing to meet our expectations. And let me tell you this, here's just what you know is true in life. When you continue to put upon someone how they don't measure up, at some point, they quit trying. They become hopeless. I will never be good enough in this area for you. I'm done trying. And I'm telling you, there is a look in the eye that is unmistakable on that issue. And here's the interesting thing. Why? What does it say? Or they will become discouraged. As a dad, we are called to give courage to our kids, not take it away. Don't exasperate. Don't embitter your kids because they will become discouraged. I want to tell you something here today. If you've made this a pattern, whether you meant to or not, I told you intent isn't the point of this passage. But if you've made this a pattern in your life, and I want to tell you, even if your kids, even better if your kids are at home for what you can do about, but even if your kids are grown and out of the home, I want to tell you there is so much power in simply confessing, I have failed you in this point. I am sorry. To, to a son or a daughter who've never heard a dad say, I am sorry, you have no idea. No idea how powerful that is in their lives. I am sorry, would you forgive me? It begins with confession and repentance. And then as we turn around 180 degrees, dad, As we turn around 180 degrees and start walking a new way, guess what we're doing? We're disengaging, Ephesians chapter 4, disengaging from old behaviors. It's not a matter of talk. It's a matter of walk. 
But as we disengage from old behaviors, we engage in new ones. And our kids begin to see. And I will tell you, this is powerful. I remember talking to a grown son. And I remember him telling me that when his dad, in this case, his dad came to Christ later in life. His dad had done a very poor job raising his kids. And his dad was making monumental changes. His sons were out of the home. Didn't even live at home anymore. But he confessed, he repented, and he started to do things different. And this kid told me, this grown son told me, I know <laughs> I know there must be a God to live under that kind of bitterness, that kind of exasperation, and to see that change. And to see a dad who loved his kids, even from now a grown state, spoke volumes. I want you to hear today, it's not too late. It is not too late to redeem that relationship. Why, what, what are we to do instead? Instead of exasperating, instead of embittering, what are we to do? We're to instruct and train in the Lord. That, that phrase is talking about nourishing to nourish and grow our kids. If you're here today and you would say, you know, Todd, I'm, I'm trying to, to give discipline and, and parameters in my home. I'm raising kids right now, which is so great. Can I tell you this, uh, just a, a thought for today and how it relates to this point. When you're telling your kids, let's say, for instance, lying is not okay in your home. By the way, I'm hoping that's true, okay? I'm hoping that's true. Hoping you're not good with that. But here's the key. It's to continually remind your kids. My wife does a great job of this. I am often just not thinking of connecting this dot, but to continue to remind our kids that we don't lie, not just because your mom and dad don't like it. You don't lie because God says that being honest and having integrity is how we ought to live. When I connect my house rules back to the one who gave them to me, I am helping my kids see that even when they leave my house, even when they come out from underneath my roof, God says, this is just how you live. You were learning it. You were growing in it in this laboratory at home, but out on your own, that doesn't mean, well, now I can just start lying because that was just mom and dad's preference. No, we connect the things that we're parenting our kids with connected to the word of God, we keep reminding our kids, this is God's stuff. This is how God says we live, therefore we live that way. Okay, I'm hot and sweaty. Number two, your employer-employee relationship is to be defined by integrity and fairness. Your employee-employer relationship is to be defined by integrity and fairness. What do I mean? Ephesians 6 verse 5, slaves... Obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and there's no favoritism with him. Let's fill in the second of, or third of these graphs today and see the blanks. Same idea. God has this relationship both to slaves 
and to masters. And in return, they are to both honor and obey him as they respond to one another. So there's both a vertical and a horizontal component of their relationship. Now, you are looking at that graphic. You read what I just read, but yet my fill-in said employer-employee. And for some of you, you're going, Todd, I'm confused. The Bible doesn't say employer-employee, but yet you're no see what are we talking about? Let me just say this. I've grown up in a church environment where very, very, I can't remember not having uh, uh, someone teaching God's word just skip to this principle. Take this truth, and the truths we'll find here absolutely are principles that should be lived out in our work world. No doubt about it. We'll talk about it in a second. But I want to tell you, if a message normally takes me X amount of hours, this week took me Y, because I was struggling with this. The Bible is really pretty clear. The word doulos, it means slave. The word master, interestingly enough, is kurios. It means translated master and Lord. That's what these words say. So what do we do with this? And the reason I want to take a minute to unpack this with you, there are, number one, people in your world that think your Bible is hogwash because of what it doesn't say about slavery. I want to talk about that a minute today. But there's also some of you that are here today and you're saying, Todd, this has been a huge issue for me. I can't get over the fact that the Bible doesn't say what I think it ought to say about slavery. Help me. So let's take a couple minutes to unpack it today. First off, let's clarify the terms and we'll track with this. Remember, Paul's writing to first century Ephesus. We're reading it 21st century America. Track this. Slavery as America and other peoples know it has always, always, always been condemned in the Bible. Let me say that again. Slavery, when you think of the word slavery, whether it be in the 17th and 18th century in this country, whether it be sex slavery today, whatever it may be, that kind of slavery has always, always, always been condemned. Here's what I mean. Exodus 21, just a chapter over from the Ten Commandments, as Moses is writing to a group of former slaves, and by the way, former days, they just left Egypt. Days into the journey, he's giving the, God's giving him these words at Mount Sinai, and this is what it says. It, it condemns the idea of kidnapping people and forcing them into labor. That's the slavery we're familiar with. God always condemns that. In the New Testament, 1 Timothy, oh, that reference, by the way, Exodus 21, 16. I don't have it on the screen, but if you want to write the reference down. Secondly, 1 Timothy 1, 10. In your NIV, if you have an NIV Bible like I do, in it, it says right there, slave traders connected to a group of people that include murderers and those who kill their parents. That's not a savory group of people, okay? That group of people, it says, that who live contrary to the sound doctrine that conforms to the gospel. Absolutely prohibited. The Bible is very clear that slavery, as you and I know it, has no place in anyone's world. Secondly, people in biblical times, they became slaves for a host of reasons. The kind of slavery that when Paul's talking to the Ephesians, this is what he's talking about. In the Old Testament, they were conquered peoples, also in the New, whose alternate option to slavery was death. Slavery seemed the better deal, okay? Some were born into, slave, into a slave state either because one or both parents were slaves, and also some chose, not all, some chose a state of servitude to either pay off debts or to find provisions in exchange for work. That kind of slavery was usually temporary. 
you in a sense become a slave to someone for four years, for eight years, whatever it may be. And that when they had paid off that debt, they were freed. Third, as with other kinds of human ills that we find in the Bible, just because the Bible gives parameters to something doesn't mean it condones it. Here's what I mean. When I tell people that God is both the creator of marriage and the author of divorce, they go, huh? And we'll get to this in the spring, but here's the basic idea. When the first married couple decided to part ways, God did not go, what? How'd this happen? God knew in the hardness of hearts, as Jesus says later in the New Testament, he actually gives provision, though he says in Malachi, I hate divorce. And I hate what it does in a family. He says that there are two biblical grounds of why you could pursue it if there's no other option. That of adultery and abandonment. Otherwise, because God gives parameters to it does not mean he says divorce is a good idea. He just says simply, if you are, here's the way you could. Jesus did not desire that there would be poor and hungry people, but he said there always will be. And then he told us how to treat them with care and love and respect. Paul exhorts slaves actually in 1 Corinthians 7 to gain their freedom if possible. And then if you remember the whole letter of Philemon, I don't know, Philemon's always that little book in the Bible that we rarely pay attention to. It's only one chapter long. But Philemon was actually a slave owner in the city of Colossae. And the, the, the thing of where their paths had crossed, Paul had led him to the Lord when the church started in Colossae. Then he had a slave, a guy named Onesimus, who ran away, a runaway slave. Paul is now serving somewhere across the world, comes across, of all people, comes across Onesimus. What does Onesimus do? Puts his faith in Christ. Becomes this great help to Paul. And Paul, as he unpacks the story, realizes, you're my friend Philemon's runaway slave? Guess what he does? He writes a letter to Philemon. You have it in your Bible. And he says, hey, I'm sending Onesimus back to you. In the first century, if you were a runaway slave, guess what you came back to if you ever were brought back to your master? Incredible punishment or death. But it's Onesimus holding. Imagine Philemon coming out the door that day. And I don't know what state of fear Onesimus might have been in, but he walks up and he hands this letter to Philemon. And it's the words of Paul. And what does he say? Philemon, slave owner, in a sense, you owe me your life because I shared the gospel with you. I'm imploring you, free Onesimus. That's the biblical record of things that God gives direction to. Finally, all major abolitionist movements in Britain, in the U.S., all came from Christians. Mark this. Christians who said, this is wrong and something needs to be done. That being said, looking at all these realities of the slave-master relationship, I have to tell you, I'm still in attention this morning. It's not resolved yet for me. I still, let me make it clear, I still wish the Bible would simply say, all kinds of this slavery are not consistent with God's character. It doesn't say that. So here, what do we do with that? Well, I hope you would do the same thing I do. This is what my week has been about. Number one, I've said, I've, I've done three things. I admit, number one, I don't know everything. And neither do all my Google searches. <laughs> I've read, by the way, five commentaries and 10 articles and still couldn't find an answer that I felt comfortable with. 
Number two, I realize that not only do I not know everything, but number two, I realize God does. So this week I've just prayed. I've said, God, I need more revelation. I need more truth. I need more wisdom. I don't know what to do here. But yet I got to preach on Sunday. So here's what I say to you. You may be here today and you may be struggling with this same issue. I have no idea why. I don't know what's been going on in your life that brought you here today with that issue. But if you do and you're in the same place I am, then I would encourage you to do the same three things. You don't know everything. God does. Ask him for more truth, more revelation. You may be here today and you have no issue. This is resolved in your head. It's not a problem. Great. But you have other issues like it that are a tension, a spiritual, theological tension for you. Do the same three things. Acknowledge you don't know it all. Acknowledge God does and ask him for more revelation. For now, let's take these principles though, because like I said, they absolutely apply to this relationship. We're going to say that employer, employee, we're going to say direct report, report, that kind of language as we finish out today. What should employees do? Well, they should obey with respect, fear, and sincerity of heart. The way that you're on the job, the way that you respond to your direct report, and this is basically what I hope you love as we read this passage, the Bible's saying, don't be a kiss up. It's as simple as that. Don't be someone that as soon as the boss comes by, you put down a video solitaire that you were playing on your computer. Just stop playing video solitaire at work. When the boss comes by, don't put down your phone because you were texting someone that has nothing to do with your job. Just don't text people that have nothing to do with your job during work. Be a good worker as though your boss was looking over your shoulder all day long. Because guess what? Your heavenly one is. That's what he's making the connection to. You don't do what you do to try to please someone who works down the office from you. You do what you do because you have a heavenly father who deeply cares that you live a life of integrity. How you live when, quote unquote, no one's looking, he deeply cares about that. And you have the opportunity on the job. See this form of authority in the workplace as an underneath the umbrella of Jesus's authority. A couple minutes ago, when we were talking to um, students, kids who live in the home, and, and you're not one of those, and you're listening like, oh, yeah, that's not that hard. You know, get over it. They're your parents. Now, all of a sudden, we're talking to you at the workplace, and you're like, this is a lot harder now. Uh-huh. And some of you track this. Some of you came in today. And this is literally the most challenging thing in your life right now. You, 24-7, are thinking about how hard it is to work for that person. Here's what I just want to say. The Bible says, the Bible says your job is like a laboratory for learning how to live under authority. See it. See it with a new lens. See it with a new perspective. If you're here today, too, and you would say, okay, I'm the direct report. I'm the person who's giving leadership. Then look at that first phrase. Treat your workers, quote, in the same way. In the same way of what? In the same way that your heavenly master treats you. Treat them in the same way. Treat them with that kind of care, that kind of loving leadership, with that kind of sacrifice. Rather than sitting in an office and barking out orders, be someone who understands what it is to be them. And watch this, don't lead by intimidation, don't lead by fear, because the master you both serve doesn't show favoritism. Doesn't show favoritism. 
I want you to track this just for a second. Some of you are here today and you find yourself uniquely in the same shoes I find myself. Not literally, I'm wearing my brown toms today, but you find yourself in the same role and it's this. You are a husband, you are a dad, and you are a direct report for somebody. In each of these three relationships, each of the three visuals we filled out today, you keep finding yourself on the right side compared to the left. The right side of leadership and authority, God-given authority. But in all three of these roles we've talked about today, you keep finding yourself in that quadrant. Can I say, it is an incredibly important thing then for you to walk away today, not sensing that there is a plush life of privilege, but instead a very real responsibility for being in the shoes you, you are currently in. It is a big deal that you lead well. Conversely, if you're in the other set of shoes in some places in, in at least some, if not all the relationships, it'd be a little weird, I guess, if you're both a wife and living at home under your parents' roof at 16. Not good. So hope that's not true. But the point is, is that if you're on the other side of that relationship multiple times, I want to encourage you as well. God wants to show you, wants to teach you. I tell my kids this all the time in different facets of their life. When they'll talk to me about really challenging leadership that they have to deal with, I will tell them, number one, God is after something. He is after something in your life. Number two, this is a great example of how not to lead someday. You don't have to repeat this. Finally, it brings us to our third point today. Number three, you evidence the spirit of God filling you as you live out your appropriate roles no matter how your counterpart is doing. You evidence the bee being filled with the spirit of God when you live out the appropriate responses that God has said to D. Now we've already said it's challenging, even though it's rewarding, it's challenging when the counterpart, when a husband to a wife, a child to a parent, a direct report to a reporter, when those things are working well, even that provides a degree of great effort and challenge. But when the other person isn't doing their part, that's when we throw up our hands. And we go, God, I can't be expected to live out my right responses when that bozo is doing what they're doing. And here's what I just want to say. I get it. I get it. I get the challenge of that reality. But here's what you need to hear today. When you will take seriously, and I find often it's just a change of brain. It's just a change of perspective. I've had seasons in my life where I've had to say, God, I'm under leadership that I'm struggling with so much right now. Teach me to change the way I see this circumstance. And I will tell you, God has been so gracious to give me a new set of lenses. And when I will not just, it's not just a one-time prayer, by the way. That's probably a daily prayer, at least for a season. But when you allow God to change the way you see it, really good things begin to happen. Here's our game plan for the week today. Live out God's directed responses in your family and on the job. And as you do that this week, you're going to evidence the reality of this spirit more and more filling you up. Let's pray. Father God, we look at this passage today and it's very, very challenging. And it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter which side of the equation you're in because your word gives both encouragement and challenge to both, to husbands and to wives, to children and to parents. 
to direct reports and those who report to them. All of us have something specific to do in, in the right response to each other. And our prayer is this. Our prayer is that not only would you give us the grace and the strength and the, the presence and power of your spirit this week to live these out, live out these responses well. But our prayer today, God, is that when we do, there would be an unbelieving world watching us who says, what is the deal? I, I can't even fathom how you live that out. I want to know about that God too. We want to evidence who you are, whose we are this week. We love you and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.